16 verses. Jeremiah chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Hear what the Spirit says to the church. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, While their children remember their altars in their Asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at the end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. There ends our scripture reading for this afternoon. We'll sing in response Psalm 36, the stanzas 1 and 3. No readings.
this afternoon are Lord's Days 2 and 3. Lord's Day 2 begins from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you keep all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No, on the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. After the sermon, we will sing in response from Psalm 139, the stanzas 1, 2, 8, and 13. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we begin the section of the catechism entitled, Our Sin and Misery. What it has summarized from Scripture about you and me is not flattering, that's for sure. What we confess here about ourselves is devastating and humbling. Just look at some of the statements in those two Lord's Days that we've taken together. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Our nature is so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. We are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. Hateful, corrupt, sinful, and evil is what we are. We're exposed here by the piercing, pure light of God's law. The camouflage that we like to wear, the facade we like to put up is thrown off. We're rotten to the core, wicked and perverse. And no, we're not talking about mass murderers like Stephen Paddock, who went on a killing spree last month in Vegas. Catechism is describing you and me, law-abiding citizens who go to church, who strive to be kind and hospitable to other people, who recoil in shock and horror at what Stephen Paddock did. We're tempted to 
focus on and lament the misery in this world. Sickness, crime, injustice, war, terrorism, poverty, racism, death. But these are the consequences, the manifestations, the symptoms of something far worse. The root, the cause of all our misery, trouble, pain, chaos, sadness, frustration, and broken relationships is sin. It's ingrained in the fabric of our being. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, spells out the problem in the clearest, simplest terms. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So my own heart is the source of evil desire, revenge, envy, abhorrence, pride, lust, greed, and every other imaginable wickedness. It's a vile fountain from which only filth flows. And Jesus was on the same page as Jeremiah when he said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. We don't like to face that music, do we? We'll go to almost any length to to deny the truth about ourselves. We laugh or scoff at sin. We excuse it or brush it off as merely human failure. We minimize it by trying to persuade ourselves that since sin is so common, it's not that bad. We fuss over the splinter in our neighbor's eye so that we fail to see the log in our own. Like our first parents, we'll point the finger of blame away from ourselves at God even. Did He perhaps create us with this evil streak? I know we can't blame God, As the Catechism is quick to point out, God created man good and in his image. His mind was riveted on divine things. He saw their glory without any dimness. His heart was right with God. His affections flowed freely toward his Maker. He loved as God loved. His heart was as transparent as crystal. He had nothing to conceal. He knew his own heart. He could see clearly into its deepest corners and recesses for it was just a reflection of the heart of God. But all that changed drastically, totally, and radically with the fall and disobedience of our first parents in paradise. This afternoon, we will hear what Scripture has to say about our fallen nature. As painful and as difficult as it is, we need to know this in order to live and die in the joy 
of our only comfort. And so I may proclaim to you the Word of God as summarized in Lord's Days 2 and 3 and revealed in Jeremiah 17 under this theme. My heart is inclined to all evil and desperately sick. And we'll see three things. The deceitfulness of my heart, the searcher of my heart, and the sanctifier of my heart. How many of us, brothers and sisters, have not heard someone say, just follow your heart and everything will be okay? It's a creed embraced by millions of people. It's a statement of faith in one of the great pop cultural myths of the Western world. It's a gospel proclaimed in many stories and movies and songs. It's a catchy slogan adopted by motivational speakers and New Age gurus, all promising us a happy-go-lucky life. Essentially, it's a belief that your heart is a compass inside of you that will direct you to your own true north, strong and free, if you just have the courage to follow it. One secular psychologist posted... Ten reasons to follow your heart on her blog. One reason she gave was that we learn to love ourselves. Just listen to what she wrote. People struggle, she said, with low confidence, social anxiety, and the belief that they're not good enough. When we follow our hearts we truly begin to love ourselves. We start to believe that we are good enough, even great. We believe that we are exactly the person we should be, that everything that has happened to us, good or bad, has made us the people we are today, that each of the things that has happened was for a reason, taught us a lesson, and enabled us to develop some skill and knowledge we possess today. We are just as we should be, and we should love the person we are. Sounds encouraging, and beautiful, and liberating, doesn't it? But the follow-your-heart creed isn't found in the Bible. Our hearts don't tell us the truth. They tell us only what we want to hear. If we do what our hearts tell us to do, we will pervert and impoverish every desire, every beauty, every person, every wonder, and every joy. Our hearts want to consume those things for our own self-glory and self-indulgence. Our heart cannot save us because what's wrong with our heart is the heart of our problem. The Lord Jesus at one point in his ministry said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So don't follow your heart. It will lead you to misery and ultimately to damnation Instead, follow God, who has made known His will in His Word. So let's turn.
to what God revealed through Jeremiah. The son of a priest prophesied for 40 years or more, spanning the reign of five kings. The message he had to bring was predominantly one of judgment against Judah. It would come in the form of an army from the north, the Babylonians who would destroy the city, raise God's temple to the ground, kill men, women, and children, and drag many others off into captivity. The people were deserving of this punishment because they had given themselves over to idolatry, forsaking the Lord to serve other gods. When Michelangelo painted Jeremiah on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, he presented him in a posture of despair. He looks like he's wept for so long that he has no tears to shed anymore. His face is turned to one side like a man who's been battered by many blows. His shoulders are haunched forward, weighed down by the sins of Judah. His eyes also are cast down as if he can no longer bear to see God's people suffer and his hand covers his mouth. We know that Jeremiah's message of punishment and captivity and doom was not well received. The people didn't want to hear it. The priests conspired to kill him. King Zedekiah arrested him charged him with desertion and threw him in a dungeon. And at the end of his life, he was exiled to Egypt where he died. With Babylon to be feared, Judah, instead of trusting in God, turned to Egypt and Assyria for help. They put their trust in rulers. Well, thus says the Lord, we read it, verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Jeremiah, using the imagery of a shrub in the desert, goes on to show that the curse is experienced in the form of loneliness and poverty and death. The man who trusts in the Lord, however, is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Verse 7. Total trust in God brings life. And that life can never be taken away. Will a tree planted by water become parched when there is a heat wave? No, because it has a constant water supply. Its leaves stay green even in a season of drought. A tree next to a river continues to bear fruit while a thorn bush in the wilderness withers and dies. Now, Jeremiah was not writing from some ivory tower sealed off from the realities of life. He was speaking from personal experience. He had become an object of ridicule. Everyone was making fun of his message. Just look at verse 15. Behold, they say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. See that? The people wanted him to put up or shut up. They wanted him to prove that his prophecies of judgment were really true. He kept preaching about all the curses that God would send. Well, where were they? 
If you say that those who trust in themselves are cursed, how come we're not experiencing loneliness and poverty and death? Well, even in that difficult and trying time, Jeremiah was like a tree planted by water. He stayed right where the Lord put him. He said whatever the Lord told him to say. Verse 16, I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness, of despair. You know, Lord, what came out of my lips. Jeremiah did not desert the Lord. He did not ditch the Lord's message. He did, of course, pray for help. Be not a terror to me, he begged in verse 17. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. And that prayer was similar to the praise that he had already offered in verse 12. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel. Jeremiah found his security and comfort and peace in God. He was blessed because he put his confidence in the Lord. No, God didn't make everything smooth sailing for him. As we saw, he allowed him to be threatened and imprisoned and exiled. But God enabled him to persevere through all those tribulations in faith. And God isn't nearsighted. His vision extends to and includes the glory of the new earth. He has that in mind when He sends us affliction. And so both God's curses and blessings can come much later than we anticipate. <clears throat> Reminds me of the story of an atheist farmer. He would ridicule people who believed in God. One day he wrote a letter to the local newspaper. I plowed on Sunday, planted and cultivated on Sunday, hauled in my crops on Sunday. I never went to church on Sunday, yet I harvest more bushels per acre than anyone else, even those who are God-fearing and never miss a service. Well, the editor printed the man's letter, and then he added this simple comment. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. As believers, while we are enduring struggles and setbacks, we should be looking beyond this world and this life to the coming world and the life everlasting. Instead of looking for treasures on earth, we should be looking for treasures in heaven. Through his own example, Jeremiah is urging Judah, and also you and me today, look, when trials come and when you are faced with temptation, don't leave the water's edge. Keep trusting in God. Keep reading His Word. Even if you think God has turned a deaf ear, keep praying. The tree planted by the water doesn't just stand there. It sends out its roots by the stream. It stretches 
And it strains toward the grace that is available through God's Word, through prayer, through diligently attending the worship services, soaking up the proclamation, being nurtured by the sacraments. God will refresh you. He will make your leaves green when the heat becomes oppressive. He will enable you to bring forth fruits of thankfulness in times of hardship. Well, it's in that context that we find one of the most powerful statements of human depravity in the whole Bible. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And notice that the prophet is speaking in a broad, sweeping way. He doesn't say to the Israelites of his day, your heart is deceitful. Had he done that, we would have triumphantly limited his moral assessment to that stubborn and stiff-necked generation of Jews. We're not as bad as they were. No. He says, the heart is deceitful. Everybody's included. Young and old, rich and poor, minister and members, everyone, even the holiest saints. It's the heart that's deceitful because the heart is the control center of our whole existence. It's the center of your physical life. When your heart stops pumping, you die. It's the center of your rational life. Your thoughts, plans, and motives are conceived there. It's the center of your emotional life. Feelings such as sorrow and joy, hatred and love well up from that root. And lastly, it's the center of your spiritual life. What a woeful source it is. It's the seat of our evil will. So the heart is the mirror of the person. His whole life is reflected in it. Solomon realized that as well when he wrote in Proverbs 27, as in water face answers to face, so the heart of man reflects the man. You might even say, in our heart we live our life. And doesn't the Apostle Peter write somewhere about the hidden person of the heart? The heart is the man. That personal center has a moral character which comes to light in and gives unity and color to all our thoughts and words and deeds. The heart is deceitful. The word used there is the same one from which the name of Isaac's youngest son is derived. And so we could render it this way. The heart is a Jacob. Which you know means deceiver. Subplanter. Think about it for a moment. What does your heart tell you? On second thought, don't answer that. Your heart has likely harbored thoughts today that you would not want to repeat here in public. I know mine has. My heart tells me that all of reality ought to serve my desires. My heart likes to think the best of me and the worst of others. 
unless those others happen to think well of me, then they're wonderful people. But if they don't think well of me, or even if they just disagree with me, well then something's wrong with them. And while my heart is pondering my virtues and their errors, it can suddenly find some immoral and horribly angry thought very attractive. Our hearts were never designed to be followed, but to be led. They were never designed to be gods in whom we believe, but to believe in God. Jeremiah doesn't put a time limit either on the deceitfulness of the heart. It's not like a heart becomes more and more deceitful as we get older. No, it's always deceitful. From the day we're born to the day we die. We're no different by nature than the devil. Remember how he managed to get our first parents to rebel against God? He threw doubt on God's word. He made it seem like God wasn't telling the whole truth, holding back the reason, the real reason why he didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the forbidden tree. You'll be like God. And then he outright denied the truth of God's word. You will not surely die. You can get away with it. How do you know if you don't try? Small wonder that the satanic temptation in Genesis 3 is introduced with these words. Now the serpent was more crafty, more cunning, more sneaky and sly than any other creature. And by the time you get to the last book of the Bible, he's labeled what? the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12. Well, our hearts are like that snake. Untrustworthy, calculating, crooked, dishonest, unscrupulous, scheming, and duplicitous. When confronted with sin, my heart tells me, what can be wrong with questioning or tentatively exploring and dabbling in sin, shouldn't we test everything? The question, however, is very often the, the thin edge of the wedge which Satan drives home in the form of earthly wisdom, doubt, infidelity, immorality, materialism. Yes, at the core of all sin is deceit. Our heart reassures us the act you're now doing, the desire or attitude you're now feeling is not that bad because there are much worse things. You would never do what Stephen Paddock did. That lustful thought you had isn't something to get that upset over because who doesn't have a lustful thought here ever? That hurtful comment you made was okay because you can't help it. You grew up in a dysfunctional family. That feeling of envy over your neighbor's beamer? Don't lose sleep over it. God knows you're weak and frail. He's merciful and will overlook your sin. There are a thousand distortions of the truth that arise in our heart. 
That's why Jeremiah cries out, the heart is deceitful above all things. Some commentators compare the heart to the ocean. At evening, it can appear perfectly calm. Nothing but a gentle ripple on the waters. But during the night, a storm arises suddenly, and the treacherous waves are like mountainous billows crashing over a ship, tossing sailors overboard. The heart, however, is deceitful above all things. It's more treacherous than the ocean. More deceptive and beguiling than anything or anyone in this whole created world. My heart will try to excuse me if I receive sin as a mere suggestion. Look, I'm not at all going to commit the sin. I'm not even going to talk about it. But surely I, I can think about it. What harm can it do to others if I contain it within my mind? And before long it appears pleasant and attractive. The thought begins to fascinate and the spell of evil begins its deadly work. Thought condenses into desire. Desire grows to purpose and purpose ripens into action. So Slyly does sin come into the heart that it's there before we're even aware of it. The heart is so conniving that it will justify a particular sin by rejecting another one. It happens, for example, that someone in his youth lives a reckless life, spending every last cent on earthly pleasures, and then by way of repentance, he becomes a miser. Greedy, wretched, living only for himself and his hoard of money. A tax collector can repent and develop into a Pharisee. The pendulum went sadly far in one direction, and to make amends, it swings too far the other way. So the shutting of one gate may open another, and one sin may crawl in as another creeps out. You set up all your troops to guard the northern border, and the enemy comes up in the south, taking you completely by surprise. You pursue a virtue until you hurry into a vice. You shun one evil so much that you fall into a worse one. This deceitfulness of the heart is seen in the excuses which we marshal after we've done something wrong. To screen the conscience from regret and remorse is one of the schemes of our heart. You come to the point where you say, yes, I did wrong, but what can you expect from somebody who's conceived and born in sin? And with a tear in your eye, you present yourself as an innocent victim instead of a guilty offender. We sang from Psalm 36, deep in my heart I know the voice that lures the wicked to his choice of sin and self-delusion. How true 
indeed. And that realization is echoed by C.S. Lewis in the introduction to the second edition of his Screwtape Letters. He wrote this. Some have paid me an undeserved compliment by supposing that my letters were the ripe fruit of many years' study in moral and ascetic theology. They forgot that there's an equally reliable, though less credible, way of learning how temptation works. My heart, I need no others, shows me the wickedness of the ungodly, he wrote. Our hearts tell us that if we steal or if we look at pornography, we'll be happier. Life would be better. We're blinded to our own heart's treachery. It's desperately sick. It's beyond cure. And that's why the prophet asks the rhetorical question, who can understand it? When we rely on ourselves for wisdom, we end up unable to tell right from wrong. That hit song from the late 70s, You Light Up My Life, contains this line, It can't be wrong when it feels so right. Determining right from wrong based on what we feel in our heart is dangerous because the heart can't be trusted. It's devious and incurable. No one can know it. No one except God. And with that, we touch on the second point, the searcher of my heart. At first glance, it seems alarming, brothers and sisters, that these two verses should stand next to one another. The heart is deceitful above all things, followed immediately by, I, the Lord, search the heart. My depraved heart that deceives others and deceives myself falls under the penetrating gaze of the holy God. My unknowable heart is known by him. Actually, my heart is not merely one of the many objects upon which God turns his all-seeing eye, but it's the one which he singles out for investigation. I search the heart. As an astronomer directs his telescope upon the star, he wants to examine and adjusts all his lenses so that he can see it clearly. So God's eye focuses on our hearts. The one who made us knows what is in us. We're able to deceive our spouses, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, our elders, ourselves. But we cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. Notice as well, that this is a constant activity of his. He doesn't say, I have searched or I will do it, but I search now and always. Not a moment of our life is free from his searching eyes. 
Eyes that not only take in our actions and speech, but the secret thoughts that we harbor deep in the innermost recesses of our heart. And let's not be quick to brush this off as some Old Testament text. One that doesn't really apply anymore. No. The same truth is upheld in Hebrews 4 where we're told this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God has perfect knowledge of everything an attribute or quality that we call God's omniscience. His knowledge is not limited in any way. God's aware of all events that have ever happened, are currently taking place, and will ever happen. And as we've seen, it goes beyond mere events. It extends to thoughts and desires. He is the all-knowing God. Should that terrify us? Should we be distressed by that? No, because look at how God refers to himself in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. And the Lord is capitalized in our English Bibles, which alerts you to the fact that in Hebrew it says, I, Yahweh, search the heart. What does that name tell us about God? Well, God announced that name to Moses in Exodus 3. Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of our fathers, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And he preceded that announcement with a statement so the meaning would be clear. I am who I am. With that name, God says that He who now calls Moses and wants to save His people from bondage and death is the same God as the one who appeared to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is who He is. The same. Yesterday and today and forever. We're not able really to, to summarize in a single word or phrase what Yahweh means, but perhaps the best is He will be what He will be. He will be what He was for the patriarchs, what He is now and will remain. He will be everything to and for His people. It's not a new. It's not a strange God who is coming to them through Moses, but the God of their fathers, the unchangeable and reliable One. The God who never leaves or forsakes His people, but always and again seeks out His own. He is steadfast in His love, in His grace, in His help. He will be what He is because He is always Himself. So the covenant God of promise, the faithful One who saves us, the God who sent His only begotten Son to deliver me from my deceitful heart is the God who searches my heart. 
in Christ. He is near the brokenhearted. He knows that I love him, that I delight in his law in my inner being, that I strive to serve him, albeit with shortcomings and failings, that I believe in his Son as my only Savior. The small beginning of new obedience, he's able to see that in my heart as well. And so with David, I'm able to sing, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if I from your ways depart. Psalm 139. Jeremiah teaches that the heart is desperately sick. There's no way we can cure it or fix it. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. And with that, we touch briefly on the last point, the sanctifier of my heart. Jeremiah alludes to this joyful news in verse 14, actually. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. You see that? The incurable heart can be cured by God. He not only searches the heart, he's able to save the heart. How does God perform this radical heart surgery on us? Through his Holy Spirit. And these dark and negative Lord's days about our sin, that same good news surfaces in the last answer of Lord's Day 3. We're totally unable to do any good unless... We are regenerated by the Spirit of God. What a relief. There's hope for us. There's a divine remedy. The Spirit of the living God can and does turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He works in me with His Word in such a marvelous and mysterious way that He takes my deceitful heart and He makes it true to God. Canons of Dort speak about that in, at length. The spirit of regeneration, it says there, makes the will spiritually alive, heals it. That's got to be taken from Jeremiah 17. Heals it, corrects it, and pleasantly and at the same time powerfully bends it as a result where formerly the rebellion and resistance of the flesh fully dominated, now a prompt and sincere obedience of the Spirit begins to prevail. It's exactly what Ezekiel prophesied of. Just listen to what God says through him. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Spirit so works in my heart that my heart is brought by humble and childlike faith to rest on Christ and His atoning sacrifice. And then I experience that the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin then light takes the place of darkness, truth the place of deception, and sincerity the place of guile in my heart. 
Acts 16 tells a moving story about that divine miracle. It's the story of Lydia, a businesswoman in Philippi who traded in purple cloth. Remember her? Like every son and daughter of Adam, she was born with a deceitful and incurable heart. But when she heard Paul and Silas preaching the good news about Jesus Christ, we're told the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's a beautiful way to describe what happens when a sinner comes to Christ. The Lord opened her heart. May the Lord do that to each one of us as we submit ourselves to the preaching of His Holy Gospel from Sunday to Sunday. And know of a certainty that He who began a good work in you will bring it to perfection on the day of Jesus Christ. Amen.